Welcome to the Crescent Podcast. I'm Leanne. This podcast is an extension of my personal philosophy and commitment to continual growth in all areas of life. I firmly believe that optimal health comes from addressing all areas of us as human beings, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Through expert interviews, I hope to both inspire and enable you to create sustained change in your own life. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy. Hello, welcome back to the Crescent Podcast. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm so excited today. I'm bringing you an interview with Dr. Courtney Tracy. She has a PsyD in clinical psychology and is also a licensed social worker and therapist. And this was a fun one for me to record and just to release too, because so many of my interviews with these experts are very cut and dry. We're talking about a very specific subject. It doesn't get too personal. And in this episode, both Dr. Tracy and I get personal with some of the trauma in our past and how that has affected us in the present and how we've worked to begin to unravel that trauma. So she is known as the truth doctor and really one of her big, big things is helping people realize who they are today and many of the patterns they're living out today are not their true selves. Those patterns are a result of their childhood, maybe some specific trauma they experienced in their childhood, and how we can begin to identify those negative patterns we're living out and this pattern of reactivity and begin to shift out of that, heal some of that past trauma and start to really find who we truly are underneath all of that and let go of all those negative patterns. So again, For me, it was a really personal episode. It was fun, actually, to be able to share some deeper insights into my own life. I love having conversations like this, you know, with experts, definitely, but even with, you know, friends and family. So I'm really excited to share this very vulnerable and insightful episode with you. I hope you all enjoy it so much. If you do give it a listen, definitely send me a message on Instagram, Facebook, my website, however you prefer. I always link those below. I love to hear your feedback on these. Tag me in it if you are listening. And I'm still asking for feedback on the magnetic moments that I include at the end of the episodes. So for any who listened to the episode last week, I asked you guys to give me some feedback on If you find those magnetic moments helpful, if you enjoy me giving you a challenge for the week to come of a way that you can implement something that you learned from the episode into your life. So I want to continue to ask for your feedback on that because if the majority of you find it helpful and really enjoy that challenge, I will keep doing it. But if the majority of you don't or don't listen to it or think that maybe the challenge should be at the beginning of the episode, let me know and I will just switch things up. So with that, thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy. Dr. Courtney Tracy, thank you so much for coming on the Crescent Podcast. I'm so excited to dive into just your take on psychology, on helping people work through different things. Um, So thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So I always start, I always ask the guests to give their own introduction just so that we can get to know you a little bit better. So take us back. Tell us about, you know, your childhood. Did you always want to be a therapist or psychologist? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I am a therapist. I have a doctorate degree in clinical psychology, um, but I did not get licensed as a psychologist. And there's a few different reasons for that. Um, But I am a licensed clinical social worker. Um, And then so I have four degrees that are all around science, math or psychology. And then I own a few mental health businesses. Um, And how did I get to that point? Well, I grew up in Orange County, California, and I grew up uh, in a low-income family, uh, raised by a single mom who we lived, so I lived in a house, 
that was three bedrooms. And I lived with my grandma and my grandpa and my mom and my half brother and my uncle who is who is mentally disabled. So it was a difficult upbringing. Um, our house, um, it's a little hard to talk about because I don't want to have any of my family members that might listen to any of the podcasts that I'm in feel like I'm judging my childhood, even though I was internally judging my childhood. And that's why I am where I am today. But, you know, there, our house had a lot of spiders and a lot of ants and there were holes in the roof and there wasn't good food. And I really like the TV raised me and I wasn't really I wasn't taken care of when I was a child. I was left alone to figure out life. And being where I was in, in the low income part of Orange County and having the TV raise me in a time when like teen pop was big and and like teenage girls becoming famous sooner. And then like that's when like, you know, body image was changing and everything like that. So my idea of what the world was and what was cool in the world when I was younger was someone that had a lot of money, had a really good family. Um, and that's what I saw on TV. And then that's also what I saw because I lived in Orange County, California. Mm -hmm. So my life consisted as a child of a lot of comparison, a lot of feeling like I had a lot of lack in my life. And it left me with a lot of questions like, why? Like, what is going on with my uncle? Why is my mom the way that she is? What is going on with my dad? My dad did a lot of drugs for a lot of my childhood. And my mom, my mom's a very unconscious person. And I think that this might be like maybe the first time I've said that publicly. I talk about my mom a lot, but to call her an unconscious person, I mean, that's what I really believe about her. And I know it's not her fault, but I think a lot of people in my family were they're unconscious. They're just living. They're living like, like they're just from one thing to the next thing, from one thing to the next. They're, they're living in a reactionary world. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I was growing up, I just saw a lot of, I saw what substance use and I saw what mental health could do to human beings. And I said, like, what is the deal with this? Like, why do I have a bunch of questions and nobody to answer them for me? Like, what is going on? So I started getting into drugs and alcohol when I was 13. I started stealing my grandfather's alcohol from the bar of our house. He was an alcoholic. And I realized that later on in life, he was a veteran. So once I started going through my schooling, I realized I completely understand why he's numbing with alcohol. They had six kids. My grandparents had six kids all back to back. And my grandfather was always overseas. He was very high up in the military. So it was basically a single mom raising six kids. And one of them was my mom who became a single mom who had me when she was 19. And then I lived in that whole family dynamic until 17 years old when I was like, I am out of here. <laughs> I am out of here. I'm going to go study psychology in Santa Barbara, California. I moved in with my high school sweetheart, who is now my husband. Um, we're coming up on 15 years being together. So it's half of our life. Oh my gosh. Whoa. That's <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, so I started using substances when I was younger. And and then I met my boyfriend when I was 14, started dating him when I was 15. We did a lot of drugs together. Um, he grew up in an opposite life than me. His mom and dad have, were together since they were teenagers. They've been married. They have four kids. Dad's a doctor. Mom's a stay-at-home mom, white picket fence, wealthy. And so when I started dating him, I was like, oh, there's a there's a these this life is possible not just on the television and i thought how did how did this family exist like how did this happen cuz i know how my family happened i knew all of the struggles i knew we were resilient but i knew that we had a lot of generational struggle so then i looked at my boyfriend's family and i was like how did they get here and they got and i and i started to really ide idealize my now husband's dad, who was a doctor, Dr. Tracy. 
And oh my gosh, really? Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. so funny. Wow. Yeah. And so I said, you know, I think I want to, you know, become a doctor one day. I think I want to become a medical doctor. And I was like, I'll be a psychiatrist. And then I started realizing that a lot of our ailments, especially the ones that I saw in my family, were psychological, not necessarily physical. So medication may help some of the symptoms, but it really was a psychological problem that I saw in all of my caregivers, all four of them, both my grandparents and my mother and my father. So I decided to study psychology and I decided to move out at 17 and fully support myself. So I started studying psychology. I still had a lot of issues with substances for in, in my early 20s. So it took me three years to go through community college, which I, I mean, I could have gotten into a state school. I did well enough in high school but I didn't have the, the money. So I took out loans. I went to community college. I got an associate's degree in, in um, liberal arts with an emphasis in math and science. Then I got a bachelor's degree in psychology. I went to USC for a master's degree in social work. And then I went on to get my doctorate in clinical psychology. So now I am also Dr. Tracy. Um, mm -hmm. But I have my background from my upbringing that really allows me to have empathy for people. I understand addiction. I never became addicted to any of the substances that I used, but I used them a lot to numb my pain. I just had an underlying knowledge of why people run from pain that I was still able to have a clear conscience to know. Like I never let the substances take over my own control. And that maybe was like a defense thing because I also had to be very in control of my life if I wanted to get anywhere because I didn't have anybody taking care of me. Hmm. So that's basically like how my childhood led to where I am today of being a doctor of clinical psychology and a licensed therapist that wants to help people understand their trauma from their childhood, substance use and running from pain. I love that. And I think you pointed on such a key factor was that your subconscious just truly didn't believe another life was possible. And I think that's one way that these patterns just keep playing out generationally again and again mm -hmm. and again, because we're never expanded to believe something else is possible. And it's heartbreaking because truly where you're born and the family you're born into has such an impact on the outcome of your life. But right. it sounds like a really, really pivotal part of that was meeting your boyfriend, now husband and just being expanded. Completely, completely. And, and I think, you know, so I've never gone through therapy before myself, I had to do a few sessions that was required for my doctorate program, or I actually thought that it was required. And then I, they ended up telling me that it wasn't a requirement. But it was nice to kind of see what it was like to be on the opposite side. Um, so I never had a therapist. But what I but I agree with you, like, I've thought about it, like, why did I not succumb to my pain? Why did I not become a drug addict? Why did I not become someone that self-harmed or that had active suicidality? Because a lot of the things that I went through in my life, they lead people there. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, what is it? And I, it really was my now husband. It was that he, he held firm for me that who I am today is who I had always been. And that he would stand alongside me while I went through the trials and tribulations of my life. Like I tried to leave him a lot of times. I'd been unfaithful to him. Substances were in the mix. I didn't want him to love me as much as he did. Because I felt like I didn't deserve it because I didn't have it in my childhood. And I feel like that's the thing that like I think therapists do the same thing for people. They say, I know where you are at your core because I know your whole history. Like, you know, he met me at 14. Not much happened before that that had changed. So he really met me when I was who I was from everything that I've been through. And so I think therapists do that too. They start to, they learn about your history and then they hold firm for you the understanding and the compassion and the trust that you will be able to get to where it is that you want to go. And you can just, and they'll be there for you along your journey. And so he was basically my therapist <laughs> wow. in an emotional way. And then I was my own therapist in an educational way. So I had the information and the knowledge 
And then I had someone that was there to connect with me. And those two things combined, I think, is what therapists do for people every day. Hmm. Oh, I love that. And that honestly gave me chills what you said mm-hmm. about him just held firm. And I'm already like, <clears throat> we have to do an episode on relationships and like getting through a difficult relationship like that. Cause that is, sounds like a whole magical story in and of itself. So yeah. I'm making <laughs> <of> that, but... <laughs> so, so tell me now, I saw that for your dissertation, you focused a lot on self-compassion, self-actualization. Talk to us a little bit about that, why that became the focus. I mean, I can see definitely from your history, why that mm-hmm. may have been a focus and what did that journey lead you on in particular? Yeah, thank you for asking. You're the first person that's asked about my dissertation. So I oh really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. So, so, well, let's see. I started working in the addiction field in 2014. I was 23 years old. I was getting my bachelor's degree. And I was still coming out of my childhood trauma. I was still coming out of the person that I, the person that my experiences made me, you know, I wasn't yet the person that I am today. And I mean, I was internally, but not behaviorally and interpersonally. Right, exactly. So when I started working at the first treatment center that I worked at, they, they hired someone around the same time as me. And he was a spiritual counselor. And he would go around to all of the clients and he would ask them to put their hands together in front of their chest and bow down and say namaste. And I was like, this is crazy. I'm not doing this. Like, I, I don't even, you know, I didn't, I was, a, I'm an, I'm an extroverted person when I'm comfortable, but because like, so in my childhood, I like, I hid who I really was. When people would drop me off, the very few friends that I had when they would drop me off, I've had them, I would have them drop me off in front of someone else's house. So they didn't know where I lived. So they thought that I was just this totally different person. I would lie about who my parents were and, and how much money I had and all of that. So I, I was really trying to be someone else. And so I had a really hard time opening up to people. And I hold that memory. I will hold it forever because it's so, it's so different than where I am today from when I refused to bow down and say namaste in front of just one other person. And and it was through this, this observation of seeing people that had addiction issues. So these people that, it, that were my clients that engaged in the same behaviors as I did in the past, but, were, but, but weren't able to be strong enough, have enough coping skills to not become addicted. So I saw these people that were very similar to me get significantly better through spirituality and the definition of spirituality from this practitioner that was teaching them was the space between yourself and your impulses. And in that space is who you really are. And so when we have a thought or a feeling or a traumatic reaction, and then we automatically go to impulse, there's no room for us to get to know ourselves and who we really want to be in the world in terms of our response. And so that is self-actualization. And that is self-compassion. It's giving yourself a moment to say, I just went through something and I'm feeling because I went through something. So that's compassion. It's however I'm feeling is okay. And then self-actualization is allowing yourself to know who do I want to be in my responses, because my responses will define me. And so over the last six years, from 2014, I've started to really realize, especially, so this was such a powerful awakening for me, spirituality, self-actualization, self-compassion, from 2014 to 2017, that I left that place that I was working at, hired on, that spiritual counselor to open up my treatment center with me that I now own. That's called Good Heart Recovery. And the the focus is on helping people use the self-actualization, use the space between themselves and their impulses and allow self-compassion to help cure them from their ailments of substance use and mental health. So I felt like there was no way that I could write a dissertation on something 
one that I didn't believe in wholeheartedly, like, like I talk in my dissertation about cognitive behavioral therapy. It's helpful. It's helpful. But in substance use treatment, like people are using substances as a solution to another problem. And so if we just see the solution as the problem and don't realize that there's another problem, like what, and what is that problem? Like then we are, we're missing the point. So someone's numbing because they don't want to acknowledge the pain that they've been through, but who they really are, who they actually are is underneath that. And so what I think happens is like in cognitive behavioral therapy, they learn about their behaviors, their thoughts and their feelings, but they don't develop a sense of self that gives them purpose, that gives them meaning, that makes life worth it, Mm -hmm. that just makes life worth it. And so I felt like I have to, I want to research self-actualization. I want to research self-compassion. I want to research the one thing that now has me going namaste and bending down every morning of my life, because that's a huge transformation for me. And some people that are listening may be like, yeah, so now you can, you know, bow down and say namaste. But what about like my serious anger issues or my serious addiction issues? Well, what's the, what's, you know, nothing has worked to help solve those. So how is self-compassion going to help solve those? And I wanted to be able to answer that question. So I researched over 250 research articles from the last five to 10 years on cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, how those are the two things that are primarily used for people that have substance use, but that the relapse rate for people that use substances is 60 to 80% using those interventions. So it's like, what is missing? Like we are missing something. And what are we missing? And I believe wholeheartedly and defended in my dissertation that it's because we are missing the fact that these people don't feel like human beings anymore. Mm. They have numbed their pain so much. And when we numb our pain, like literally in our brain and our body, when we numb our pain, we also numb the ability to see ourselves and know ourselves. It's the same parts of the brain. And the same thing happens with trauma. Like when we experience trauma and our brain decides to forget it, it also decides to forget any emotions that we felt during that traumatic experience. And then over time, we just don't experience those emotions anymore. But emotions are a third of our human brain. So we, we literally forget who we are. And, and there aren't interventions that say, who are you? Let's sit with yourself. And let's figure out who you really are underneath all of the thoughts and all of the feelings and all of the behaviors. So we have to go below. We have to go underneath. There's so much more to explore about human beings and human life than a lot of psychological interventions take a look at. And I think that that's why over the last few decades, maybe the last three decades, Eastern medicine and Eastern philosophies have really been fusing into Western culture in terms of medicine and the idea of healing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When it's, I, I would assume that a part of that too, and maybe this is what you were getting at is to know who we are, we have to know maybe why we are the way we are currently. And so it's going back to all of that childhood trauma and maybe it's not all trauma. Maybe it's just a specific experience. And, you know, this happened when I was a child and it shifted my thinking in this way. And I've actually been doing a lot of work on this. And one of the things that I recognized was my biological father wasn't because of his own trauma, wasn't able to give love in a way that most people would. He didn't really ask yeah. us about ourselves. He wasn't very he couldn't connect. And mm-hmm. so what I realized now in my adult life, what I realized is what I picked up from that as a child is, oh, if my father doesn't want to know me, I must not be worth being known. Right. And I right. started to see how that has been playing out my whole life in, you know, I don't have a lot of close friends. I'm such an introvert. So I know that's mm-hmm. a part of it too. But I'm always like, oh, I wish I had more really close friends who knew me so well. But I realized at the root, root, root of all that was I don't let people 
know me well because mm. deep down consciously subconsciously I don't believe I'm worth being known well so it's right. like that one little thing and you know there's so many other things to unravel from my childhood but that one little thing just like opened up my eyes to so much and is right. already shifting the way I connect and interact with people it's wild so yeah. but that's such a huge part of it is yeah who am I these we have these impulses and maybe I'm going on a rant right now. That's no, okay. <laughs> but, but we have, you know, so many of us have these impulses like, oh yeah, well, I just, you know, I don't like people to know me. And we think that's just who we are. We never take it right. back further and realize, no, this isn't who I am. This is actually a subconscious traumatic impulse that's just being played out again and again and again. Completely. And, and I just, I love that you and um, I read the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Yes. And, you know, he's very much in the same path of, no, we do not need to be stuck with these mm -hmm. negative patterns of trauma living themselves out through us again and again. We can break those patterns. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's like, and, and so that's the thing is, yes, and that's how we build compassion for ourselves. That's how we build self-compassion is because we go, we go, I don't have to be this way. And it's not my fault that I am this way. And that's like a major part of it is like, you know, I made a post recently that, that said exactly what you were just saying, which is like, we tell ourselves that we are a certain way, because we it makes us comfortable, or it keeps us safe or whatever it is. But if we didn't experience the past experiences that we had, then we would probably be different we would probably be more extroverted. We would probably feel more safe. We'd probably be more funny or more outgoing or whatever it is because we would feel more comfortable at our core. And so I think one part of it is self-compassion. And then we also need to like, like have knowledge of the ability to have compassion for others. And that's like a big thing. Like uh, that's a major thing because we have to connect with people. We are attachment based humans, humans. Like we don't come out of our mother's womb and we can just live our lives freely. Like we have to be taken care of. We have to be given care. And then we attach to what's giving us care. And so we are designed to attach to people. So when we isolate as like, we're not born. I mean, there, I have to say that there are psychological um, ailments, there are physical ailments that can lead us to, you know, having more distance, not being able to engage as much interpersonally, like there are those concerns. Um, most of the time, however, we are not born with an inability to connect to people, we're actually born with an inability and a desire and a necessity to connect with people. So, so that's part of it, too, is like healing mental health is like, well, it's like, so I am this way because my father. And then a lot of the times, a lot of interventions will stop there. I have compassion for myself because I know that I am this way because of my father, as an example. But that doesn't really allow us to fully understand the situation. And you said it perfectly when you said my father was not able to because of his own trauma. That's having compassion for others. That's going you know, that's teaching us and, and anyone that we share this information with that pain causes pain, that causes pain, that causes pain, that causes pain. And that it really is a much more existential problem that we're having than someone cutting us off on the freeway or a family member not being able to be there for us. Like it is a sequential event of pain and trauma and misunderstanding and disconnection that lead all of us to feel pain and trauma and disconnection. And it's when we can allow ourselves to be and like really get to know our minds that our subconscious specifically, that we start to actually become conscious beings, which is why I say my mother is an unconscious being, because no matter how many times I've tried, you know, like she reads all my Instagram posts, she's a part of my online community, she sees all of my videos. And she says that I, I provide great information, mm. but there isn't a, there isn't an acclimation to the information and an integration to the information. And so she's just still walking around unconscious, mm. totally unconscious. And so when we have compassion for ourselves, it's because we've really gotten to know our unconscious and how it came to develop. 
And when we have compassion for others, then we get to learn that they have a subconscious too. And then when it comes to self-actualization, you know, when people are suicidal, when people are depressed, when people feel hopeless and worthless, which we see so much, it's like it's increasing, like mental health services have increased and medications have increased, but our depression and our anxiety and our substance use continues to skyrocket. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for that. And it's because we have become robots basically that are born and then hopefully our parents can take care of us for the first five years. And then we're stuck into public education from five to 18. And then we're supposed to go to college for four years and then get a job and then work for 45 years from nine to five every day of the or every week of the year. And then we retire and hopefully we have benefits and hopefully we've had kids and then we die. And that is the life of a lot of people. And we aren't given permission from all the structures in society and whatever's going on in our family system of what we're allowed or not allowed to do or be to say, wait, I am alive. I have the ability to make my life have purpose and meaning. And I have the right to figure out what I want to do with my life and what happiness means to me and what joy means to me and what creativity means to me. And I can help myself to understand myself and then I can help others so that I actually have this, I have something that I, I have a positive imprint on the world. And so many people don't get any of that last thing that I just said. And so that's really what self-actualization is. It's a, it's a humanistic concept that says that we are the way that we are because there's been so many things missing in our life in terms of our, the needs that we have as human beings. And if all of our needs were met and we weren't concerned about our safety, we had love and belonging, um, we had esteem, like we respected ourselves and felt like other people respected us, and we felt secure, like we make enough money to get by and we know that our, we're not gonna lose our house any day then if all of those things are taken care of, then we would be people that would be growing our purpose and our meaning and giving back to people. And it's the lack of all of that that cause the clinical interventions that people get for substance use and mental health to just be about filling those first needs. Let's just make sure you're safe. Let's just make sure you know how to have interpersonal relationships. And then once all those needs are met, then it's like, okay, all your treatment goals have been satisfied and you don't need care anymore. And for me, I would be like, oh no, now we're just getting started. Now you actually have everything that you need in your life as a baseline that every, what every human being should have. And now the real work starts. Now you get to decide what you're gonna do with your soul in this human body while you're on this planet. And that is what really fulfills people. Yeah, and a, and a key point too that you touched on is you know, number one, like you said, your mom is, even though she sees all of this, she's still unconscious. And I wonder if a part of that is deep, deep down, she knows it's just too painful to bring it all up and actually work through it. And it's too scary okay. and too big and too hard. And yeah. it's heartbreaking, but a lot of people get stuck there. Yeah. And then maybe some people go to the next step and they say, oh yeah, I'm this way because of my dad or my mom <clears throat> and how my childhood was. And then they sort of just say, well, this is who I am because of that. And then they go on to there. But I think the next step of that is, yes, I'm this way because of my childhood and the trauma I experienced, but it's my responsibility to choose how I want to go forward and choose whether I want to continue being this way or not. And so yeah. I think, and that sounds like absolutely the message that you're sharing as well. And so yeah. I know that you're kind of known as the truth doctor <laughs> and- I think for a variety of reasons, but just explain it to us a little bit and how you really walk through people to help them find their own truth. I'm quickly pausing this episode with Dr. Tracy to bring you the product of the week. And this week, it is one of my favorite brands ever for Sigmatic. I'm sure many of you have heard of them, but for those who haven't, Four Sigmatic is actually a superfood company founded by a group of Finnish gentlemen, and their goal is really just to popularize mushrooms and adaptogens 
in a variety of ways. And they have so many really delicious latte mixes, cacao mixes, elixirs. And one of my favorite products that they have recently come out with is their superfood protein. For those who follow me on social media, you'll know that I am so particular about protein powders. Up to this point, there's truly only one protein powder that I've ever felt comfortable using. And that is the Garden of Life Raw Superfood Protein Powder because it's so clean. But I'm so excited because Four Sigmatic's new superfood protein is just as clean. And another reason why I love their products so much is they test everything. They do third-party testing for heavy metals, allergens, bad bacteria, yeast, molds, mycotoxins, pesticides, etc., etc. So they're super, super clean, completely organic. I use at least one of their products every day, so I hope you guys get a chance to go check them out. I will link to them in the show notes, and if you are interested, you can get a discount at checkout with my code LAL20, and I will have that in the show notes as well. I think for a variety of reasons, but just explain it to us a little bit and how you really walk through people to help them find their own truth. I love that. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So the truth doctor came to be when I was thinking about, like, if I could put in a three-word tagline what I want to help people do in their life, what would it be? And my husband asked me this question and I said, I just want to help people find their truth. And he said, well, then you should probably call yourself the truth doctor. And I said, wow, that's kind of wild, but I think that you're right. I said, it feels like a bold statement, but I really believe that that's what I'm doing. And so what it looks like for someone to find their truth and it, I mean, it takes a long time, depending upon how much history there is. Um, But basically, the way that I see it, so even so the name of the treatment center that I own is called Good Heart Recovery. And it's sort of the same premise. So it's like, deep in our core, we have our soul, our being, whatever you want to call it. And maybe that can come off as woo-woo or spiritual or whatever, but I believe that we have an essence within us that is pure. I believe that we are born with the ability to be happy, healthy, connected, um, and feel free. And so I believe that that is everyone's core internal truth. And what happens is we are born with this truth. And then as we are a child, we learn what's right and what's wrong, what emotions we can feel and which ones we can't feel, what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do, who we're allowed to talk to and who we're not allowed to talk to from an interpersonal level, from a family level, from an extended family level to a community level, to a society level, to a planet level. We are immediately given rules and boundaries and told when we are not following either of those things, when we're making people uncomfortable, Uh, regardless of whatever, you know, whatever it is, there's so many different rules and boundaries that everybody has immediately. Like when we're born, it's like, it's immediate. And so we start to conform, we start to lose our truth. And we start to conform to whatever our environment needs, including the people and the places and the things that are in our environment. We start to lose our true self, we start to lose our actual self, our authentic self. And so what I do when I work with people is we start by, I start by teaching them about the mind. I'm like, listen, you have a mind that most of it is running your life for you and you have absolutely no idea that it's even doing that. So the first step is to teach people about how the mind works. And the best way to do that is to teach them about the subconscious and how when we take in information how it gets stored, why it gets stored, and how this has, how it's supposed to be a survival mechanism, but it's actually been to our detriment. So like, for example, we have, we have like autopilot, 
for example, like, and a lot of people see this as like, oh, then I can tie my shoe or I can drive my car without having to think about it. But if you think about the purpose of autopilot, the purpose of autopilot in our subconscious is, is so that we can learn to do things that are repetitive that we know we have to do all of the time and still focus on our ability to be safe. So the example that I always give is like, so we're walking across the street and we realize that our shoe is untied. So we go down to tie our shoe, but we know that we're in the middle of the street. So our autopilot mechanism is going to be tying our shoe for us. And our conscious mind is going to be looking for danger. So that's the purpose of autopilot. It's so we can still focus on what's going on around us and still get things done. That's a way that it could be a survival mechanism for us. But our brain does that with psychological concepts too. So for example, like someone that has been really, someone that's been severely emotionally abused, for example, their parents are yelling at them constantly. So they learn just through repetition that when someone is forceful towards them, they should submit, they should submit. And so then they submit over and over and over and over again. And it becomes an autopilot mechanism that their body and their mind just knows how to do to help them survive. And then later on in life, they get a job and they have this boss that they know shouldn't be treating them the way that they're treating them, or maybe a partner that they know shouldn't be treating them the way that they're treating them. But they just autopilot automatically go into submissive mode. They go, their brain goes, this is familiar. I know how to do this. Let's have you not worry about this situation and I'll just take it from here. So their subconscious goes, let's just submit. And we don't realize, and that's where it comes in where we go, oh, well, this is just the way that I am. I would just prefer to be a people pleaser. It's like, you don't, you don't prefer to be a people pleaser. You've just developed into becoming a people pleaser because your subconscious believes that that's what's going to keep you safe. So like, that's just one subconscious mechanism is autopilot and there's like 25 minimum that we that our that our brain uses to go I got you I'm going to take care of you I, I know how to handle this but your subconscious isn't conscious mm-hmm. your subconscious doesn't know that this is not that you should not be being treated like this and that your survival does not depend on you submitting for your entire life there are other options and the only way that we can Use those other options from our conscious awareness, like things that we're learning, like when I'm teaching clients about autopilot and confirmation bias and the schemas that we have in our minds that we've developed. Like once we get that knowledge, then we can go, we can take our conscious mind and we can look into our subconscious and go, whoa, there's a lot of stuff in here. And I realized that I have a lot more control than I thought because now I know how much I haven't been in control. So it starts with teaching people about the mind, all about it, and then saying, now that you know all of these mechanisms that your mind has done for you over the years, I want you to look at the way that you feel consistently, the way that you think consistently, and the things that you do consistently. And I want you to see where these things have been developed in your life. So I want you to go back and I want you to see that a lot of these things that are making you unhappy, they are false. They're not your true self and they're not, it's not the truth that you have to behave these ways. You can behave differently. You can think differently. You can feel differently. You can recondition yourself. You can uncondition yourself and allow those old patterns of thoughts and beliefs and feelings to become extinct because you don't use them and you can start to develop new ways that you want to live your life. So it's about helping people figure out who they really are. And once they can understand how their mind works subconsciously, then you can look at all of the symptoms. So we can look at depression. They can learn what is depression and why do we get depressed? What is anxiety and why do we get anxious? What is a traumatic response and why does our body and our mind engage in traumatic responses? So we give them knowledge and we allow that knowledge mixed with their own understanding to become wisdom. And when we can do that, then they can start to say, I, I know my true self and I know that it's true that I can change whatever I want in my life because I know I can keep myself safe because I've been practicing it through learning all of this new information. I just don't want people to be, I just, you know, I don't want people to be unconscious mm-hmm. and because I see in so many people 
what that does. It just, it's a waste of life. It's a, it's a wasted life. It really is. And, and it's, I don't mean that people that are unconscious shouldn't be alive. I mean, I want them to be alive. I want them to really be alive, you know, and it really takes, it takes, it just, it's, it, I, it, I agree with you that a lot of people would be, a lot of people feel like they are better off um, living, either living lies or living without knowing the truth because it's easier. It's just easier. Mm-hmm. So there's two things. I mean, everything you said was just so beautiful, so much gold. Mm-hmm. But two things specifically I wanted to touch on. So one, I'd love if you could touch a little bit more on how what's going on our, our subconscious and all of that subconscious trauma can lead to things like anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. But then also I'm, I'm feeling like some people are going to have a hard time understanding how who they are today isn't their true self. Do you, could you give an example of like maybe how you were as a child versus who you became because of your trauma and something that you thought was your true self that you did or you liked or a way you behaved that you thought was who you were, but it actually wasn't? Yeah. Yeah. So the first question was how does what our subconscious does, how does that lead to anxiety and depression? So, I mean, one example is, I mean, we can talk about anxiety. So anxiety, you know, some people will say that anxiety is a secondary emotion. Like we have, we experience something else and then we have anxiety. I feel like that's not true. I feel like anxiety is probably the most primal emotion that we have because even like something like sea slugs literally experience what we would consider anxious responses, like their nervous system will become hyper aroused when they are in danger. And it's the same thing. We just now have thoughts and feelings attached to that same response. So I think when it comes to, so like our subconscious, for example, one thing that I would say is, you know, that example that I gave earlier, where you have a parent in your childhood, that's constantly berating you for having emotions. So you learn your body and your mind learn to you psychologically submit, like you don't express yourself at all. And then your body's nervous system learns to just either freeze or, or, um, or just, I don't know, be quieted down because you want to give room for that other person. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, exactly. And so I think that that example of like your subconscious saying, okay, so now every time that we are in a situation where we feel threatened or we feel like this, or this person like reminds us of the pattern, like the interpersonal pattern between ourselves and our parents, that not, we literally might not even be aware of that. It could be completely subconscious then our brain's chemicals will start to remain at a lower at a lower pace because we're not activating them we're not being outgoing we're not engaging in happy interpersonal relationships because we're afraid of people so we're not having the actual chemicals on a biological level be released as often as they would be if we were allowing ourselves to be free and and then on a psychological level we start to not use our voice we start to isolate from people we start to feel like we have low self-worth because we've gone through the last 30 years of our life with people telling us what we can and cannot do and just listening to them. So this can lead to, it can lead to depression and to anxiety. Anxiety can be, anxiety sometimes is developed when we find ourselves in situations where we feel threatened, but that we can't escape them. Like maybe our boss or our partner is yelling at us and we feel like there's no way out because we're someone who's just, unfortunately, this is our life. Unfortunately, we just are always around people who want to treat us poorly. And so we start to develop anxiety because there's all this pent up want to express ourselves, but we don't. And so then we start to develop anxiety. And then if we can't handle that anxiety, then it can become depression because we can unconsciously go, you are too activated right now. And the last time that you tried to get activated when you were a child, you got hit or you got kicked out of your house or something. And that's subconscious. So then your anxiety will be pushed down and become depression because then you'll just say, I just shouldn't feel at all. Like I I feel my childhood told me I'm not allowed to feel. 
And so now I'm going to push that feeling down and it can become depression and it can become low self-worth, hopelessness. Like these patterns are never going to change because we don't know that our subconscious attached to these behaviors to save us. And now they're to our detriment. We've forgotten. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it can lead to it. And it's, it's, I mean, it's complicated because I would want to use, you know, for each person, it would be specific examples. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it's helpful when you actually have someone that's taking a look at their own childhood and then their symptoms and they see the relationship, then it's not subconscious anymore. It becomes conscious and we're able to make that change. And for me, for the second question of how, you know, how people can believe that maybe like I'm not my true self, like sometimes, like let's take someone that, that doesn't need therapy, for example, that's like, no, I might have been through some stuff in the past or think that they don't need therapy. I've been through some stuff in the past, but um, I'm fine. Like, I don't need therapy. I am my real self. I am in control of my life. Someone who, for example, maybe um, is like a control freak, like maybe they don't have severe anxiety or anger or depression, but they're a control freak but it's led them to be really successful, let's say. Like they're perfectionists, they're, they're, they call themselves a control freak and they've got become really successful in life. That's me, so that's me. I've become very successful in life, but why? Why have I become so successful in life? In the beginning, so when I was growing up, I thought I just didn't like people. Like when I was, in 2014, when I started working at the treatment center, Someone said, are you going to go on to be a therapist since you're getting your bachelor's degree in psychology? And I said, definitely not. And they said, why? And I said, because I don't think I have empathy. I don't think I have empathy for people. And they were like, but you got a degree in psychology. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I might be like a psychopath, literally, because I don't (laughs) feel empathy for people. Like, so I'm so I didn't need therapy. I was a control freak. I was a perfectionist. And I was like, I don't think I have empathy for people. And I thought that that was the truth. I thought, oh, I just don't like people. I'm just an introvert that's really judgmental. I mean, I wasn't mean to people. I just really kept a distance. And I thought and I thought that that was me. I was like, oh, it's just who I am. I'm just quiet. I'm timid. Um, and I don't like people. And And I really believed that. And I didn't have any friends. I never made connections with people. But I wasn't unhappy. And then I, that's when I started, you know, diving into self-actualization, self-compassion, other compassion, spirituality, um, mindfulness, bowing down and doing namaste (laughs) every day in front of other people. I realized, wait a minute. I, it's not that I'm an introvert. It's not that I don't like people. The reason why I'm distancing myself from people is because I feel like everyone is unconscious and the main person that's unconscious is my mother and she wasn't there for me. So now, so now I've learned to not have empathy for my mom because she made me so miserable in my childhood. And I've learned to not feel my own feelings because there was nobody there to talk to about them. So it's not that I didn't have empathy. It's not that I was a psychopath. It's not that I didn't like people. And it's not that I was introverted. It's that I had pain that was causing me to have these characteristics that I had for so long, but that at my core, I really wanted to help people. And I really wanted to understand people. And I really wanted to help people. And I had a shit ton of empathy. (laughs) I just didn't realize it because I was so, my subconscious was so set in defending myself against the environment that I grew up in. So I just, for anyone listening, I would encourage you to think about aspects of who you are that you think are your truth, but that you've always wondered whether or not that was really the case. Like introverts who want to be extroverted, it's not just that you want to be extroverted. It's that you probably are an extrovert and things throughout your life have caused you to become introverted. And people who feel like they're a perfectionist and it's helped them in life, but they feel like, I really wish I didn't have to work so hard. I really wish I didn't, everything didn't have to be perfect. I wish I wasn't so stressed out and anxious all the time. You might not be a perfectionist. You might not be a control freak. You might be someone that had such a lack of control in your life in the past that you developed a defense 
to take care of yourself, that you became a control freak, that you became a perfectionist. And that's not really who you are. And that's why you struggle. Anyone that struggles with any behaviors that they're having, it may be because those are just defense mechanisms and you're not really being your true self. And everyone has some behaviors that they either don't understand or that they'd like to get rid of. And all of those things are on top of who these people really are. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, I imagine too, a tricky part of it is that we often become, they become our identity. You know, sometimes like the control freak or the perfectionist is a perfect example. People begin to see themselves that way. And then because it's gotten them somewhere, maybe they don't even want to let go of it or they're afraid to really work through the reasons why they are that way. And then heal it because, oh my gosh, maybe I won't be as successful. Maybe I won't be as um, efficient with my time, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. I think people are really scared. Like I think people stay unconscious and they stay just in the patterns that have developed over the course of their life because they're afraid because we are beings who want comfort and safety. And when we don't feel comfortable and when we don't feel safe, it's scary and it causes fear and fear exists in us because we feel like, because if we didn't feel fear, we wouldn't be able to keep ourselves safe. We wouldn't be able to stay alive. So our aliveness is attached to comfort and safety, but comfort and safety develop when we are unsafe and when we are uncomfortable. So we develop our identity and we develop our personality and we develop our behaviors as a result of our environment. We're never really given a choice to say, do I want to be an introvert or an, out- or an extrovert? Life just makes us one way or another. And it's when, most of the time, and it's when we come to therapy, for example, or you sit down with a coach or you do your own self-healing and you realize that you have permission to actually be whoever you want. You have permission to look at what you've been through in your life and decide if the outcome of those events are who you still want to be. There's just, we're way more flexible. We have more flexibility in life than anyone really tells us about most of the time. I mean, I've met some parents who they have, I mean, they're beautiful parents. They say, you can be whoever you want to be. I want to teach you about your emotions. I want to teach you about how to keep your body um, healthy. I want to teach you about your mind and how it works. And I just want to be here for you whenever you need love and compassion. However, those parents are very rare. Hmm. Most of the time, it's, I really want you to be a doctor. I really want you to be a lawyer. I want you to go to this college. I want you to take care of me when I'm older. You have to take care of your siblings. You have to get a job to help me put food on the table. I have to work three jobs. So and so I have to choose to put a roof over your head than to be there for you emotionally. And all of those things lead us to developing a personality. And then we decide that that personality is who we really are. But it's not. So do you think it's it's a really interesting point, and I don't know the answer to this either, but do you think that when we're born, we come into the world with some kind of inherent personality? Or do you feel like we come in as kind of a blank slate and then we just pick everything up? So I think it's a mixture of both because even as we are developing, we are within another human being. We are sharing blood with another human being that is having emotions, that is having stress, that is having a bunch of different experiences. And so we're already exposed to the environment. We're exposed to sound, movement, chemicals, blood, nutrition, all of that. So we're automatically being, uh, we're automatically being designed by our maternal environment and the environment that our mother is in. So I think that they're, you know, we're born with, I mean, because the thing is, is if we were born as a blank slate, then everyone would come out exactly the same. And so we are individualized and nature plays a role in that. And we can see through evolution how things happen in genetics and DNA, how we have become who we've become today. But I think, you know, in research, it shows us like even in twin studies, that are born in the same environment. I mean, of course, there's so there's a billion variables every second, every millisecond of every day. But there's similarities, and then there's differences. And it's because we all have our own experiences. 
Like even someone, like the thing is, is like, let's imagine a car, for example, the car is life and the, and there's four people in the car and then the car gets into a car accident. Everyone has been in the car accident, but everyone was in, sitting in a different seat. So everybody had a different experience of the accident. Everyone may have different psychological outcomes and different physical outcomes from the accident. And so like the car, I guess, could be that we're all in the same car could be nature. Like we're born with like, you know, DNA. And if there's no malformations, then with, you know, two arms, two legs, a brain, a brainstem, you know, we're born with all the same things. But where we are in our lives and the experiences that we have gone through and will go through will change how we transform over the course of our lives. So there's just, there's potential. Like, I, well, I guess a good way for me to answer that question is that we're all born with the potential, I think, to be many different things. Hmm. And it, it depends on how, on which of those things become activated. Like there's a Native American story or uh, analogy that says that within us are two wolves. One, and you can you know put anything into these two wolves. Within us are two wolves, one that's angry, one that's compassionate. We, we, we become controlled by the wolf that we feed. Hmm. The wolf that we feed gets stronger. The wolf that we feed uh, starts to control us and direct us. And the other one will start to whimper down and not be as prominent within us. And so it really depends on, and that's how, that's why therapy can help. It's like, if, if, if we were set in stone when we were born, then we wouldn't be, then, then nothing, then medication wouldn't help, then therapy wouldn't help, then interpersonal work and personal work wouldn't help. So I think it's both. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh my gosh. Well, this was absolutely amazing. So for the person who's listening to this, they're like, wow, I want to start taking a look at some of my current habits, some of my current impulses and figure out where the root of these are coming from any other books or websites or people that you would recommend they could check out definitely i'll make sure that your website your instagram and your tiktok because i know you're <laughs> on there will be linked in the show notes as well but anything else yeah i would say that you know and you mentioned it i would recommend that everybody read vessel vanderkolk's the body keeps the score um, I would also, I think for people who have childhood trauma that want to start to figure out how they cannot be behaving as though they're still in that environment, like how can you heal from your caregivers causing you so much pain psychologically or physically is to look up books on reparenting. I think it's really helpful. Like there's adult children of emotionally unavailable parents. That's a good one to take a look at any work on an inner child, you know, I think people think that inner child work is just um, really theoretical or really spiritual. But I'm telling you, we all have those patterns. And so I might sound uncomfortable for you to go, I'm going to work on my inner child, but your inner child is controlling you subconsciously. So you've got to take a look at it. And then I would also recommend that people, you know, there's two people on Instagram that I would really recommend their posts daily are really helpful. One of them is The Holistic Psychologist, and another one is Rising Woman. So I would check out both of those Instagrams and look up books on inner child work, and then The Body Keeps the Score will change your life. Oh my gosh, I completely agree. <laughs> I recommended it to everyone. It's so good. So, Well, thank you so much, Dr. Tracy, for coming on. This was absolutely amazing. I can't wait. I'm, I'm already thinking of like two or three other episodes we could do interviews <laughs> on. That would be so helpful and just encouraging, inspiring, enabling for people. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, and I hope everyone enjoyed it. Okay, jumping right into this week's magnetic moment. I loved what Dr. Tracy was saying about looking up books on reparenting. So that is something I'm actually going to be doing and I'll share on social media what I found and what book or resource I decided to start with. But I want to challenge you to find a resource on reparenting that really resonates with you. Maybe it's a book, maybe it's a website or an article Whatever fits your lifestyle, you know, if it's just reading a 
an article that's a couple pages and you spend 30 minutes on it, great. Like that's an amazing place to start. If it's finding a book that you can read a little bit in the morning or the evening, or maybe getting it as an ebook that you can listen to while you're driving or doing laundry, whatever it is. The goal is that we listen to this information and then we apply it, right? Because unapplied, you know, knowledge without application is just knowledge. But applied knowledge is wisdom. And I love that. That's a quote from Mark Grove that I absolutely love and really think rings so true in my own life. I'm learning so much all the time, but I want to be able to apply it as I learn it because otherwise it's just knowledge that I'm not doing anything with. So I hope these little challenges inspire you to really make some tangible changes, but in very manageable ways so that it doesn't feel overwhelming. And you realize, you know, I make a little tiny change each week or I do a little bit of research each week. And by the end of a couple months, wow, like I'm so much further. I know so much more. I've grown so much more than I would have thought possible. And it was so manageable and almost effortless. So again, I hope this is inspiring. And if you do find something, if you do look up a book or an article, I'd love to hear what it was. Message me on social media or tag me in a post. I truly want to be a part of your journey and just love hearing what you guys are learning and the changes you're making. And with that, everyone, have an amazing weekend. I will tune back in with you all next Friday. 